Good morning, church. Okay, I'm going to do a promo real quick, and then we'll move on to the sermon. So the promo is today we're going to be preaching from, uh, from our series, This I Believe, and we're going to be talking about Christian worship. Christian worship matters. And so that topic comes from our Core 52 book, Chapter 32, and the topic of worship. And so as school is beginning to start and you're developing new rhythms and new routines, I want to encourage you to begin using that Core 52 book again if you have fallen out. Because I truly believe that if you'll spend the 10 to 15 minutes a day reading that book and doing the practices it talks about, you will grow in your Bible IQ. And ideally, that as you learn more about the Bible, you will fall more in love with the God of the Bible. So I want to encourage you to begin using Core 52 again. If you haven't started or you have no idea what I'm talking about, we have some of those books still available at the welcome desk in the lobby. So after the service, just go to the welcome welcome desk. We will get you a core 52 book and right there. So that's promo over. Now to the sermon. We are all worshipers. We are all worshipers. God has created us to worship. And so that means that every single moment of every single day, we are worshiping something or we are worshiping someone. The, if you look up worship in a dictionary, the definition will probably say something like paying homage to or honoring a God. And in, in Bible times, what that literally meant was to get on your knees, to bow down, and to kiss towards a God. And while I think that's a helpful image for us to think about uh, what it means to worship, I think that that can kind of uh, get lost on us today because not very many of us are bowing down and kissing towards a God. And so I think a helpful definition for what worship is comes from Tim Keller. He's a pastor in New York. He's a church planner up there, and he's also an author. And he says that worship is when we ascribe ultimate value to something. Worship is when we ascribe ultimate value to something. Well, who deserves our ultimate value? If you're a Christian, you know who deserves ultimate value. The God of the Bible, seen most clearly in Jesus, he is the one who we should worship. And from the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 2 and 3, God has created us to worship him. In Genesis chapter 2 and 3, Adam and Eve were created in the garden. And they were to dwell with God there. They were to worship him there. And if you fast forward all the way to the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 22, God has restored the broken world. And God's people, they are there worshiping him, giving him honor and praise and glory every single night. If you are a worshiper of Jesus, you will be there too. We will worship. The problem is somewhere in between there. From the beginning to the end of the Bible, we get distracted. We get distracted with our worship. And what I mean by that is that I believe that God has placed eternity in every single one of our hearts. He has placed this God-sized hole for us to long for him, to yearn for him, to desire him to fill this hole in our heart. The problem is we get distracted and we begin to use other things to fill that in our heart. And so our worship gets distracted. And while in the, in the Bible, idolatry was the word for it, people would bow down and worship statues. That's not really what happens to us today. Instead, our idols are typically ideas that we believe about the good life. 
We ascribe ultimate value to these ideas even though they lead us further and further away from God. They distract us from worship. Ideas like you just need to follow your heart. If you just follow your heart and do whatever feels good, that will be perfect for you. But what they don't tell you is that often when you follow your heart, your heart stays restless. Or there's these other ideas that become our idols, like you just need one more thing. If you just have one more clothing item, if you just have one more car, a nicer car, if your house is just bigger and better, then you will be liked by other people, and that will fill the satisfaction in your heart. The problem is, what they don't tell you, is that you will hunger and hunger and hunger for more things, and it will never stop. You will never be content. Or maybe this is the lie that you've believed and you haven't even really understood it, that the thing that you need most in your life is a wonderful sex life. That's what you need more than anything else. And so if you're not getting what you need from your spouse, you just go and find someone else who will meet that needs. You have to just find that for yourself. That's all for you. But what they don't tell you is that Jesus has given us the gift of clearly defining when to use sex in a proper marriage relationship between a man and a woman and what ultimately happens is that desire is never filled you're still left longing for something more because god is the only one who can truly fill that satisfaction and so these ideas they become the idols that we begin to worship and the reason is is because every single day we are constantly bombarded with them from the music that we listen to, to the TV shows that we watch, to the commercials that we're not even really paying attention to. They tell us all about these good life ideas, but they end up becoming idols, and they end up distracting us from worship. What's so ironic is this week, as I was writing this message on worship, I found myself getting distracted, because that's what happens. But here's what I think the good news is for us. I think the answer for us in these moments when we're distracted is not about us doing something. I think it's more about seeing someone. Because when our worship becomes distracted, we need a clear vision of the King. When our worship gets distracted, what I think we need most more than anything else is a clear vision of the king on the throne who is ruling with compassion and grace and mercy and wisdom. When When our worship gets distracted, we need a clear vision of the king. And thankfully for us, we are given this vision in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. And so I want to invite you to open your Bibles there. It's the last book of the Bible. We're going to look at heaven today. Because the book of Revelation, it is what is called an an apocalyptic genre. And when we hear that word apocalyptic or apocalypse, we start freaking out and think that the world's going to end. But in Bible terms, what it's talking about is that it's an unveiling. It's where God opens up the curtain. He pulls back the curtain so that we can see into the heavenly realms and we can see who is on the throne. It's not about really the end times. It's more about the revelation of who Jesus is. 
Revelation was probably written by the Apostle John, the one who wrote the Gospel of John and the letters 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and he probably wrote it about 90 to 95 AD, and at that time, Christians were being persecuted. In fact, John says that he was exiled to the island of Patmos because he believed and was following Jesus, and for some Christians, that meant physical persecution. Like they, they were literally being beaten or exiled for their faith. But more than that, most of them were facing social persecution. They were beginning to lose friends and lose family because they were following Jesus. Some of them were facing economic persecution. People would no longer go to their businesses because they worshipped another God. And so Christians were facing persecution. And because of this, the churches were beginning to become distracted in their worship. In fact, if you read Revelations chapter 2 and 3, what you will find is that Jesus, he begins addressing seven different churches because most of them have become distracted in their worship. There's five out of the seven that Jesus begins to get on and say, hey, you need to worship. There's a picture of the seven different churches in Revelation. And five of them, he says, hey, your worship is getting distracted to Ephesus. He says, you have forsaken your first love. Come back to me. To Pergamum and Thyatira, he said, hey, you're starting to worship other gods and you're starting to allow sexual immorality in your midst. Come back to me. And then to Sardis, he said, you have forgotten the gospel and you're starting to walk away from me. And then to Laodicea, he says, you have become lukewarm and I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. These churches... They had gotten distracted in their worship. And so what John does is right after Revelation chapter 3 where Jesus is talking to this churches in Revelation chapter 4, he brings them into the throne room. He takes them to see the one who is on the throne. And so that's what we're going to look at together beginning in Revelation chapter 4 verse 1. It says this, After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me, that's talking about Jesus, like a trumpet said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. In the book of Revelation, the word throne is used 46 times to remind us who is on the throne, who is in control of history, who ultimately is the king. And so we are ushered into the throne room. John continues, and he says, And the one who sat there, he had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. And when John sees this beautiful picture, he begins to try and describe it to us, and he's using language almost to its breaking point. He begins to use words like, it had the appearance of, or it was like, or it was as if, because he wants to usher us into the throne room, but he doesn't have enough words to say. It's like if you take a picture of something beautiful, a sunset, or a sunrise, or the ocean, or the mountains. When you look at that picture later, it's still beautiful, but it's not nearly as beautiful as being there itself. And that's what's happening to John. He's trying to get us in there, in the throne room, but language is at its breaking point. He continues in verse 4. It says, Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, 
And seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. These seven spirits are actually the, uh, talking about the Holy Spirit. So there on the throne, you see the one on the throne. You see the Holy Spirit. And you're in a dangerous place. Because when you are in the presence of God, you are in a holy, dangerous place. Throughout the Bible, when you come into the presence of God, you are accompanied with thunder and lightning and dark clouds. I'm reminded of Exodus chapter 19. God had redeemed the Israelites. He had taken them out of Egyptian slavery. And, and he wants to make a covenant, enter into a relationship with them. And so in Exodus 19 and 20, he's about to give them the ten words, the ten commandments for the good life. But before he does this, it says this in Exodus 19:16. It says, On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Everyone in the camp trembled. Why? Because they were in the presence of God. They were in a dangerous place. I'm reminded of a story I once heard about the actor Paul Newman. You can throw that picture on the screen. Paul Newman was before my time, uh, but apparently he was this awesome uh, actor. And there's a story that he was helping make a movie in Kansas City. And so uh, while he's doing that, there was this girl in Kansas City. She lived in Kansas City. She went to the plaza in Kansas City, and she went to an ice cream shop. And so when she's in the ice cream shop, she was just waiting in line, waiting in line, and finally she gets up to the counter, and she tells the lady, hey, I want, well, if it was me, I would have said birthday cake, but uh, I don't know what your favorite ice cream is. Birthday cake's one of my favorites. And so I don't know what she said, vanilla or chocolate. And so as the attendant is scooping out the ice cream, she just happened to turn around and there right behind her in line is Paul Newman. And when she sees Paul's Newman and she looks into his baby blue eyes, she begins to get weak in the knees. Her palms get a little bit sweaty. Her throat gets choked up and she doesn't know what to say. And so Paul Newman, he looks at her and he says, hello. And she just looks at him awkwardly, can't say anything. And so she just nods her head like this and turns back around to get her ice cream cone. And so she gets her ice cream cone. She pays for the ice cream, ho- ice cream cone. She has just enough energy and strength to get out of the ice cream parlor and just gather herself. And so she takes a couple moments to gather herself. And then it dawns on her, I don't have my ice cream cone. She's like, oh my goodness, I got to go back in in front of Paul Newman and go get my ice cream cone. And as she's walking back into the ice cream parlor, guess who opens the door? Paul Newman is right there at the door. And he looks at her and he says, you're looking for your ice cream cone, aren't you? And still she can't speak. She's weak in the knees. She doesn't know what to do. And so she just sheepishly shakes her head like this. And he said... Well, you put it in your purse when you were paying for your ice cream cone. You see, this woman, she knew she was in the presence of someone important. And so for her, she was weak in the knees. She couldn't hardly even speak. Her hands were getting a little bit clammy. How much more so should we be 
with the most important being in the universe, when you come here to worship, does your pulse begin to quicken a little bit? Do your hands get a little bit clammy? Does your throat begin to clog up a little bit? Because we are in this beautiful, dangerous place of being in the presence of the King. This is a beautiful but dangerous place. And John continues his vision, and he says this in verse 6, Also, in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. I don't want you to, to zoom over this detail, because for a Jewish audience, for these Christians he would have been writing to, the sea epitomized evil. The sea epitomized chaos. The sea epitomized despair. And I can see why. Uh, recently, we were able to go down to the ocean. And when you look at the ocean and how majestic it is, there's a lot of things that can be under the water. And storms can come billowing out of nowhere. In fact, I was playing uh, catch with a football with one of my buddies, James Bond. That's his real name, I promise. Uh, James Bond. And when we were playing catch, all of a sudden I saw something black close to my feet. I thought, oh, this ain't good. I have no idea what this is. Found out it was a crab that about pinched my toe off. But you can see why the sea to the Jewish people epitomized evil. It epitomized chaos. It epitomized despair. But in the presence of the king, in the presence of the one on the throne, the sea was perfectly still. It was like glass. Because when we are in the presence of our king worshiping, all chaos is stilled. I'm reminded reminded of the old song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. There's a line in that song. I love that song. But it says, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this world will grow strangely dim in light of his glory And his grace, when we are in the presence of the king worshiping, all chaos is stilled. And some of you need to hear that this morning because some of you are wrestling with a shaky marriage. Or some of you are struggling with a bad diagnosis. Or maybe some of you are in an abusive relationship or just experienced a bad breakup. Listen to me, listen to me. In the presence of the one on the throne, in the presence of our King, when we are worshiping all the chaos, is stilled. John continues his vision, and he says this, In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes. What an interesting picture. They were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. And each of the four living creatures, they had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Eyeballs everywhere. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to Him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders, they fall down before Him who sits on the throne. And worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, 
and by your will they were created and have their being. This is the same picture that we are given in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah is being recommissioned to go to Israel and tell them what God says. And it's not going to be easy for him. Most people are going to have stopped up ears. They're not going to listen to him. And so God invites him into the throne room. And when Isaiah the prophet sees God, his response is this. He says, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man with unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And with this vision, you and I, we get to experience the same phenomenon. We are given a glimpse into the throne room. The veil is moved back, and we get to see our King. And who is on the throne? The Lord God Almighty, our Creator, He is the one who is worthy to be worshipped and all of creation is crying out, holy, holy, holy is He. But why are they doing that? I mean, what what reason are we given in the text for them to be worshipping? Because we're given this glimpse into the throne room and they could be saying whatever they want. But here's what they say in verse 11. It says, You are worthy, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for, for you created all things. And by your will they were created and have their being. When we have a clear vision of the king, we see that he is our creator. When we have a clear vision of the king, we see that he is our creator. And this was interesting to me because he could have said anything. Why are we reminded by creation that God is our creator? And I think it is because when our worship gets distracted, we begin to worship created things. This is actually the story of the Bible. God loved us so much, he created us to be in a relationship with him. But we run after man-made gods. And so God, he sends us prophets to urge us to come back to Him because these man-made idols will not give us what we want them to. If we take our despair to them, we will ultimately have more despair and more shame. Isaiah the prophet, he says it this way in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 16. It says, All the makers of idols, they will be put to shame and disgraced. They will go off into disgrace together. Why? Oh, because they are trusting in created things that have no power and just like they were tempted. Today we are tempted to put our trust in created things too. To put our trust in things like money. To put our trust in things like success. To put trust in things like our spouse. To put trust in myself. But the truth is is that all of these things, they have been created. And if we bring them our despair, if we bring them our hopelessness, if we bring them our tears, we will be disappointed because that despair will ultimately result in more despair. But listen to what Isaiah says in the very next verse, verse 17. He says this, But Israel, Israel will be saved by the Lord with an everlasting or an eternal salvation. You will never be put to shame or disgraced to ages everlasting. If you bring your despair to the Creator, He will turn that despair into peace. If you bring your despair to the Creator, He will turn that despair into freedom. 
If you bring your despair to the Creator, He will turn that despair into peace. We have the eternal Creator on the throne who is caring and capable and constant and willing to save us if we will reach out to Him in the inevitable moments when our worship gets distracted. What we need is to look back into the throne room and remind ourselves that our King is the Creator overall. But our heavenly vision is incomplete because John is going to take us back there in Revelation chapter 5. And at the beginning of Revelation chapter 5, John sees this mighty angel who is holding this scroll. We don't know what the scroll means. It's probably God's plan to redeem the world. But this mighty angel is holding this scroll and nobody is worthy to open it. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth. And so John, he begins to weep and he weeps and he weeps bitterly. But then this happens in verse 5. Listen to what it says. It says, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And so who is this fierce lion? Who is this root of David that has been prophesied about in Isaiah chapter 11? Who is this one that has conquered, who has literally, the Greek word there is Nike'd, who has conquered, who has triumphed? Well, it's almost as if John blinks. And when he opens his eyes, he doesn't see a fierce lion anymore, but he sees a slaughtered lamb. Here's what he says in verse 6 and following, Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, they fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And so when he blinks and opens up his eyes, John sees a slaughtered lamb. And I wonder when he saw that lamb, what he thought about. I think he probably thought about the Passover lamb. Some of you know this story in the book of Exodus. God is taking his people out of Egyptian slavery, but the Pharaoh just says no. And so God, he raises up Moses to be his prophet, to go to Pharaoh and say, hey, let my people go. But Pharaoh continues to say no. Ten times this happened. And and so finally, God says, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to kill the firstborn son of everybody unless you slaughter a lamb and you put that blood over the doorpost. And then when the angel of death comes, it will pass over your house and you will be saved. And that's exactly what happened. And so this slain lamb represented freedom from the oppression of Egypt. But I also think that John probably had another passage in his mind. I think he was thinking about Isaiah 53, where we hear about this suffering servant who is going to suffer for the sins of the world. Here's what it says in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7. It says, He was oppressed. And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This Messiah, this servant figure, this slain lamb, 
was a sign of God's deliverance from sin. But I think maybe more than anything else, when John saw this slain lamb, he thought about the lamb of God. His best friend, Jesus, who was hanging on the cross, who was beaten and spit on and mocked and tortured and ultimately killed so that you and I could have the freedom from our sins and be transformed by His grace. This slain lamb, this Jesus, represented God's love for you and for me. And it is this slaughtered lamb, this Jesus, who is on the center of the throne, worthy to be worshipped. And so John continues his vision, and he says this in verse 9, And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on earth. When we have a clear vision of the king, not only do we see him as our creator, we also see him as our Redeemer. And that word redeem, it just means to exchange, to buy something back. And according to verse 9, what Jesus did is with his blood, he bought our sins. With, our, with his blood, he bought our suffering with his suffering. Jesus is our Redeemer, the one who has paid our penalty in full. And so I think the question that we need to ask ourselves today and to continue asking ourselves every day is even though the Lamb has bought us with His blood, are we selling our soul to other gods? Even though the Lamb has bought us with His blood, are we selling our souls to other gods? The gods of money, the gods of sex, the gods of social status. Who are we worshiping? Because if we're honest, our worship often gets distracted. But what we need most is a clear vision of the king because when we have this clear vision, it helps us to savor the Savior. This invitation into heaven is an invitation to redirect our worship to the one who truly matters. Christian worship matters. Christ-centered worship matters because only Christ is the one who can save us and only Christ is the one who can transform us and only Christ is the one who can give us a new identity. And we actually see that in verse 10. It says that we have a new identity. When we are worshipers of Jesus, we are called a kingdom of priests. And that's important. Because that means that we are no longer God's enemies, but in this cosmic battle of good versus evil, that means that we are on God's team and we are now his treasured possession. I've shown many of you this before. This is Nook. This is one of my treasured possessions. I have like five or six of these things. If you mess with Nook, you mess with me. And many of you, you have treasured possessions too. And what this means is that when we worship Jesus... We are no longer on the bad team, but we are on the good team. And God sees us as his special possession, as his kingdom of priests. 
And since we are in this cosmic war, one of my professors, he liked to say, in Revelation, worship is war. We actually have a role to play. You and I, we have a role to play on this team, and it's not by swinging a baseball bat. It's not by shooting a basketball. The way that we play our role is by worshiping the one true king, our redeemer, and our creator. And so in just a moment, one of our elders, Joe McCann, he's going to come up, and he's going to read the rest of Revelation chapter 5, and he's going to lead us in communion so that we can worship our one true king together. But before that happens, what I want you to do is ask this question, am I ready to worship? The song's about four minutes long, but I want you to be honest. Am I ready to worship the one true king? And if you are ready, we want to invite you to take communion with us. Let's pray together real quick. Dear Heavenly Father, you are so worthy We thank you that you are our creator. We thank you that you are our redeemer. We thank you that we get to look into the throne room to remind ourselves in the midst of everything that is going on that you are on the throne. So we pray that when our worship gets distracted, even today, even right now, we pray that you would give us a clear vision of you, Jesus. It's in your powerful name that we pray. Amen.